This is the Morning Rush. Coming up on today's show, we'll look at last night's action in high school hoops. Dak and the Cowboys finally reach a deal. So what does that mean now for Russell Wilson and Seattle? Couple more teams are going dancing. Les Miles out at Kansas, and uh, not a moment too soon. And, time permitting, we'll take a closer look at the uh, the Ravens' new overtime proposal that will apparently be on the table during the virtual owners' meeting uh, next week. All that and more coming up in the next two hours of the morning rush. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? Glad to have you on board. So glad. You could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off yet another <laughs> essential work day. As always, uh, several ways to get involved on today's show. Hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush or Rush Tony C. That's my personal page. Or on Facebook at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. Also taking your calls on the rush line, 301-759-2628. Your chance to dial and dance. Shamo, 301-759-2628. And of course, our podcast page on the free Podbean app. Just download the app. Or do you upload it? No, you download it. Anyway, put it on your phone or your tablet or whatever. And then check it out because we upload. See, there you go. Every show, every day, minus commercials, and go back and listen to anything that you may have missed. All right. Let's kick off today's show as we... I got to find a better way to kind of transition from that to that. All right? Because I do the same thing every day. You know, uh, Twitter, Facebook, you know, taking your phone calls, Shaman, the Podbean app, and then I go right into the Rock Around the Region. I got to find a better way to to segue, to transition from the one to the other. It's, it was a little bit choppy there. I, I didn't like it. It's got to be smooth, man, smooth. Anyway, let's rock around the region. I want to rock! And we start with high school basketball. On the girls' side last night, Marie Purdue, monster game. 36 points, 11 rebounds to lead Frankfurt to a 62-58 win over Martinsburg in short gap. Elsewhere, Avery Everline had 11 points as Kaiser beat Union 50-13. And Hannah Alt had 13 points. Liz Pryor had 12 as Hampshire was a 45-33 winner at Washington. Tonight, Moorefield is at Petersburg. Is it Petersburg or Berkeley Springs? I think it's Petersburg. No, I can't be right. I think it's Berkeley Springs. I'm confused. I have two. I just noticed this. I have two Moorefield at Berkeley Springs tonight. Both the girls and the boys. Is that right? Maybe a little back-to-back, you know, girls first game, boys second game. I don't know. Anyway, it's listed as the Moorefield uh, girls at Berkeley Springs tonight. East Hardy is at Tucker County. And Pendleton County is at Tigers Valley. 
On the boys' side last night, Hampshire won its season opener over Kaiser 71-41. Carter Smith had 27 points to lead the Trojans' uh, Golden Tornado off to an 0-2 start. Tucker County rolled over Pocahontas County 70-39. And it was East Hardy 61, Moorefield 52. Justin Teets led three East Hardy players in double figures with 20. Coleman Mongold had a game-high 21 for Moorefield. Now tonight, again, it's listed. Moorefield right back in action at Berkeley. And Petersburg is hosting Frankfurt uh, for a section matchup. College basketball, local women's college hoops. Potomac State rolled over Allegheny College 101-34. Is that right? 34? Wow. McKenna Douthat had 14 points and 12 rebounds. Lexi Turner had 17 points for the Catamounts. In men's college hoops, the final regular season AP poll was released yesterday, and West Virginia, after going 1-2 last week, fell four spots to number 10. Gonzaga still number one. Baylor back up to number two. Also yesterday, the Big 12 handed out its season awards. West Virginia's Derek Culver was named first team all-conference. Deuce McBride, surprisingly, a little bit, was a second team selection. A lot of good guards in the Big 12. Jalen Bridges was named to the all-freshman team. Oklahoma State's Cade Cunningham was named Player of the Year. In the NFL, the Washington football team placed a franchise tag on right guard Brandon Scherf for the second straight year. Uh, Scherf will receive $18 bucks in 2021, a 20% increase over last season. He'll take it. Now, Washington still hopes to sign Scherf to a long-term deal and has until July 15th to do so. Deadline for all 32 teams to place their franchise tags is 4 o'clock today. And tonight on the ice, the Penguins are hosting the Rangers, while the Capitals are hosting the Devils, and you can catch the Caps game right here on this very station pregame at 645. And that is your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Caporale Group. So a couple things uh, that I noticed from last night's action on the hardwood. And I mentioned the big game that Marie Purdue had for Frankfurt. And boy, is she making a strong early case for not just area player of the year, but a spot on the All-State team. In three games, she has 28, 32, and 36. I do believe I have those numbers correct. That's 96 points in three games. That's 32 a game. Falcons, uh, Falcons are off to a 2-1 and one start. Both of their wins over quad A schools. Uh, Spring Mills and Martinsburg. Great game last night, by the way. Four-point win over the Bulldogs. So Purdue just going off. 32 a game. I know, it's, it's early, but still. Uh, really strange to think that last night's Hampshire-Kaiser boys game was a section game. It's been a long time since that happened, right? With West Virginia moving to, you know, four classes in basketball this year and next year, and hopefully years after that, because I like the four classes much better than the three classes. With 
the new classification, Kaiser moved up the AAA. So last night's Hampshire-Kaiser game was the first section game between the two in something like 19 years. It's It's been a while. So that's something that we're going to have to get used to with all the moving and the shaking and the shuffling. Different teams, different classes, different sections. And uh, dare I say a statement game by the Trojans last night, 71-41. And we talk about some former high school standouts, right? Making some noise at the next level. Last night's Potomac State Allegheny College game, uh, Catamounts beat Allegheny College, and there was a lot of local representation for PSC. McKenna Douthit, former Frankfurt standout, 14 points, 12 boards, 8 assists. Lexi Turner, former Kaiser standout, 17 points, 5 boards, 7 assists, 7 steals. And former Mountain Ridge standout, Maddie Paris, 8 points and 7 boards. So, a lot of local talent getting it done at the next level for one team. Oh, by the way, Potomac State. So shout out to those girls and those uh, their outstanding games last night. And thanks to Matt uh, for providing me with those statistics. All right, let's uh, let's switch gears now. And we'll start with the NFL today. And <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, after months, even years, of back and forth, Will they or won't they? Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Dak Prescott and the Cowboys finally agreed to a new deal. Now, it hasn't been made official yet. The Cowboys haven't, you know, disclosed terms. However, uh, Adam Schefter, as always, all over the situation. He says it's a four-year deal. Worth $160 million and could be worth up to $164 mil. Not exactly sure where that extra $4 million comes in. Technically, the deal is for six years, but it voids after four to help Dallas against the salary cap. And usually, with these big deals come big signing bonuses, and this one is no different. The signing bonus for Prescott, $66 million. 66. Wait, what did you say? That's the highest signing bonus in NFL history. And he is due to make, and this is this is just absurd. This is borderline just insane. Offensive, if you will. He's due to make $75 million. In year one of the deal, which, as you can imagine, also an NFL record. (laughs) It's a good day for Dak Prescott. $66 million signing bonus in year number one, $75 million. The first three years of the deal average $32 million. And apparently... The Cowboys will place the franchise tag on Prescott today as simply a matter of procedure. And I think they're scheduled to hold a press conference uh, tomorrow. So, 
what really seemed like a three-year-long game of chicken between right between Dak and the Cowboys has finally mercifully come to an end. So who won? Here's Ed Werder. Dak wins the negotiation convincingly, and the Cowboys and Jerry Jones still avoid their doomsday scenario, which would have been having to pay Dak Prescott $37.7 million, all charged to the cap this year on a reduced cap figure for the upcoming season, and then Dak possibly having the option of leaving the franchise after one more season. Remember, he played on the franchise tag last season. He only played five games, so the worst possible thing happened to Dak Prescott playing on the franchise tag. He suffered a season-ending injury early in the year, and he still winds up having so much leverage that he becomes the second-highest-paid quarterback in the league and sets the NFL record for the largest signing bonus and gets a no-trade clause, uh, a no-franchise tag provision. So basically, Dak Prescott won this contract, and he's in almost he's virtually insured he's going to win the next one, too. So the franchise tag really forced this deal to happen because, as I mentioned earlier, the deadline is 4 o'clock today. All 32 teams, they've got to tag a player by 4 o'clock. There's a slight chance it could be moved, but I don't see that happening. So had they not reached this deal, as you heard Ed just say there, then they would have tagged Prescott again. He would have played under the tag, and it would have been for 39 point whatever. All of that would have counted against this year's salary cap. All of it. You know, we had talked, uh, you know, Roethlisberger and the Steelers, how he would have been a major cap hit, like 41 mil, had he played under the old deal. And the Cowboys, just, I don't, they just weren't willing to do that again, especially with the salary cap lower this year than in previous years because of the pandemic. So the deadline approaching today really kind of, I think, forced, finally forced the Cowboys' hands to get this deal done. Looking at the numbers in five seasons, not exactly five full seasons, but five seasons nonetheless, Prescott has a team record seven 400-yard passing games, which is really hard for me to believe. When you look at the quarterbacks that the Cowboys have had, nobody, that's seven 400-yard passing games is the record. He has 24 rushing touchdowns, which is most by a Cowboy quarterback. 42-27 42-27 and 27 as a starter. More than 17,000 yards passing, 106 touchdowns, 40 interceptions. But, however, here's the most important number. Just one playoff win in those five seasons. Todd Archer, who covers the Cowboys for ESPN, says now that uh, Dak has landed the big contract, the big money, that playoff number has to change. He's the second highest paid quarterback in the NFL, $40 million a year, the $126 million guaranteed, a record $66 million signing bonus. Now it's winning and winning the big game. And that's always what the Cowboys quarterback is judged on from Roger Staubach to Troy Aikman. Remember, Danny White, three NFC title games, wasn't good enough. Tony Romo, a long, successful run, wasn't good enough. Now Dak is going to be judged by Super Bowls. He's no longer that plucky fourth-round pick. Now, with that being said, I have said on this show many times that quarterbacks get way too much credit when a team wins 
and a quarterback gets way too much of the blame when the team loses. A quarterback, no matter how good he is, can't do it on his own. He just can't. He's got to have help. Every quarterback, even the great Tom Brady, has to have help. So now that the Cowboys have Dak locked up for the foreseeable future, what's next for the Cowboys? What's next in Big D to take that next step, to improve that playoff number? Here's Tim Hasselbeck with Scott Van Pelt. They spend a bunch of money in the skill position players. I do still think they have a good offensive line. So offensively, it should make them a team that's hard to defend each and every week, assuming Dak is completely healthy, which we have to think he would be based on this contract. They have a hole on defense, though. That, that is the big uh, you know, question mark for that football team. So unless they can beat the market on that side of the ball, I don't know how much different they'll be. As I said earlier in the show, they are popular without doubt and really without peer. They remain America's team. I get it, Packer fans. I get it, Steeler fans. Dallas is Dallas. Great, you're popular. But do you matter where it matters? Can you win games in December and January and into February? I mean, where where are you with that? What are they going to be because of Dak? Well, because of Dak, I think they have the ability to potentially do it. Look, when he's been healthy and started a full season, you know, he has never quarterbacked a team to an under 500 record. I mean, he's, he is that good of a player. Look, you want to debate, is he worth the money? Is he a top five player? You can do that all day long. He's good enough to win games late in the year, late in the season, and in the postseason. He is that good of a player. Can they be a 10-win team if they get things right on the defensive side of the ball? I think they can. I'm just left with this, though, Tim. Look, before he got hurt, the only win they had is because Atlanta couldn't cover an onside kick, and they were having to play catch-up with New York in the game where, unfortunately, he got injured. So, I mean, to me, it's Super Bowl or bust, or I don't know what you're doing. Is that an unreasonable position to take? Well, I think it is, you know, in year one of this new contract for him. The expectations need to be high because Mike McCarthy is the head coach. And, you know, there's a lot of coaches on that staff that have a lot of success and experience in the NFL. So, yeah, the expectations should be high. I think year one is probably a little too lofty. Be, again, because because of things on the other side of the ball. And so they need sure. to get that figured out. And quite honestly, Mike McCarthy needs to do a good job coaching the football team. Man, year one of the contract, he's making 75 mil. You better get to the playoffs. You you better do something. And and, and to hear Hasselbeck say that, well, Dak, he's good enough, you know, can this, you know, this could be a 10-win team. You better win more than 10 games if I'm paying you 75 million bucks in the first year. I, If I'm Jerry Jones, I just gave you 160 mil. I just gave you a $66 million signing bonus. I'm paying you 75 million in year one. You better win more than 10 games. There's no, oh, well, yeah, he's good enough to win 10 games. Mm mm. If I'm paying you that much money, I'm expecting 12 and 4, 13 and 3. I'm not happy with 10 and 6. Now, don't get me wrong, 10 and 6 is probably enough to win the NFC East by four games. But if I'm putting that much money into a quarterback, I'm not happy with 10 and 6. I'm going to need a lot more than that. Now, again, there's a lot of problems with this Dallas team. 
They mentioned the defense. Last year, Cowboys 23rd in the league in total defense. Middle of the pack against the pass, next to last against the run. Only the Texans gave up more rushing yards than the Cowboys. And Dallas was fifth from the bottom in points allowed, giving up almost 30 points a game. And I don't care who your quarterback is. I mean, you could bring back Roger Staubach, Danny White, Troy Aikman. You can bring back Gary Hogaboom. If you remember Gary Hogaboom, give yourself uh, 16 points. It won't matter who you bring back if that defense doesn't get better. But expectations are going to be lofty now in Big D because of this big contract. I, for one... I'm extremely happy that Dak and the Cowboys got this deal done. Mainly so I don't have to hear about it anymore. <laughs> I mean, has this not been a constant storyline for the last three years? Dak and the Cowboys. Ed Werder isn't going to know what to do with himself anymore. I don't think Prescott is worth all that money. I don't. Now, he's a really good, he's a really good quarterback. Uh, top 10 quarterback in the league, for sure, I think. But if we're simply talking dollars and cents, he's not worth that much. He's not worth more than Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or even Deshaun Watson. I would take Watson over Dak every day and twice on Sunday. And now Dak, he's got to produce now. He has to produce. He is the second highest paid quarterback in the league right behind Patrick Mahomes. Second highest paid QB in the league on one of the highest profile teams in the league. And really, anything short of a trip to the Super Bowl with that kind of contract is a disappointment. Just like you heard Scott Van Pelt say. Is it too much to ask? Is that expecting too much? No. When you make your QB the second highest paid QB in the league, expectations are lofty. And the only way you live up to a contract like that is to make a Super Bowl. I'm not even saying win one, but just to get one. Get to one. If you want to justify a contract that big, you have to get to a Super Bowl. You have to get somewhere. You have to get to the big game, a place where Dallas hasn't been in 25 years. It's been 20, it has been a quarter, I get that math right, a quarter of a century since the Cowboys have been to a Super Bowl. And if you're going to tie up that much money in your QB, you better get back to one. Or else, it's a failed experiment. It's a failure. I don't want to call it wasted money. But that's too much money to spend not to get to the big game. All right, more quarterback talk on the way. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Glad to have you on board. Rush line is open, 301-759-2628. Talking uh, some NFL quarterback news. Dask, Dask. It's not even his real name. It's not even a real word. Dak Prescott. And the Cowboys agreeing to a four-year, $160 million deal. Did the Cowboys overpay? 
Did they pay too much for Dak Prescott? 301-759-2628. Also hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush or uh, leave a message on Facebook at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. So now that the Dak Prescott drama is over in Big D, all eyes will now turn to Seattle and Russell Wilson. Will he be traded or won't he? And look, there have been there's been rumor after rumor after rumor ever since he told the team that the only teams he would consider being traded to were Dallas, which that's obviously off the board now, New Orleans, Vegas, and Chicago. Now, Wilson's agent made it very clear last month that Wilson hasn't demanded a trade, that he wants to stay in Seattle, but he said just in case, you know, the Seahawks wanted to make a move, here are the teams that Russell will approve a trade. Because remember, he has a new trade clause. So he has to waive the no trade clause, and here are the teams that he wants to go to. So, on one hand, he's like, ah, I want to stay in Seattle. But on the other hand, here are the teams I want to go to if you want to, you know, trade me. And you know, Wilson, he also expressed some frustration, did he not? He said he was getting tired of being hit all the time behind a shaky offensive line. And he said he wanted uh, some more input on the team's personnel decisions, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. Yesterday, uh, Mike Silver, who's been covering the NFL since the NFL's been around, well, that's not true, he's not that old, but he said on the NFL Network that things are quote-unquote frosty up there in Seattle. And we'll have a lot more resolution by next week. Now, that doesn't mean Seattle's going to trade Wilson by next week. We'll just have a better idea about the Seahawks' plans moving forward. And ESPN's Diana Rossini reported last week that Seattle was indeed fielding calls about a possible Russell Wilson trade. And while these reports are coming out and the rumor mill is just cranking them out, and all these reports and everything, you know, everybody's talking about Russell Wilson and Seattle being traded. Will he go here? Could he go there? The one person who hasn't said anything recently is Russell Wilson. And Dan Orlovsky says uh, his silence can be very telling. I think the silence from Russell Wilson is deafening. And it reminds me a lot of the Carson Wentz situation in Philadelphia in regards to lack of response from the player. You know, when I said when Carson stayed quiet with the head coach firing and the new head, co- head coach hiring, it was obvious that he wanted out. Russell Wilson, again, we live in a time where it's the easiest ever to make a statement, to dispute a report. He could have some point over the last month or so came out and said, hey, the stuff that you're hearing isn't true. I want to be in Seattle. We have, we've heard nothing like that. We've only seen him throw some gas on the fire. Don't like the offensive line. Don't like the, the setup of the team. Dispute with the head coach. Oh, I want to go to these teams. And so his silence of not disputing some of these claims speaks volumes to me. And I also think that, you know, the Tom Brady point is a great one by Dom. And I'll throw Aaron Rodgers in there as well, because 
We all talk about Aaron being one of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen, certainly one of the most talented. But there's that giant butt attached to his name. But he only won one Super Bowl. How has he only won one Super Bowl? And I think Russell Wilson's looking at it going, I don't want that same conversation with me. I don't want to be one of the best we've ever seen, but to have that asterisk of, why did Russell Wilson only win one Super Bowl? Yeah, that was phenomenal. I, I just love how you led with that crazy statement of comparing Wentz to Russell. That was amazing because it got my attention. I was like, no, he's how dare he put them in the same sense. And then you explained it. It made perfect sense. Perfect sense by then. Magnificent. So, Dan, what Dan's saying is, you know, Russell could put the kibosh on a lot of these rumors. He just come out and say, not through his agent, but he himself saying, I want to stay in Seattle. And as we talked about with Dallas, now that the Cowboys have Prescott locked up, that they have to go out and get more pieces either around Prescott on offense, which they got, they kind of have some good offensive pieces in place, or even more importantly, getting better defensively. And it would behoove Seattle if it doesn't want to trade Wilson and doesn't want Wilson to start demanding to be traded. It would behoove the team to start getting some more weapons around the quarterback. Here's Mike Tannenbaum. I think Russell Wilson is a lot like us. He's a big fan of football. He goes home on Sunday night on a home game. He sees what's going on around the NFL, points left and right. Patrick Mahomes has eight gazillion weapons. And right now, remarkably, Russell Wilson has three teammates on offense that are not on rookie contracts. So to me, what this is saying, hey, Coach Carroll, philosophically, you don't believe in what I want to do, which is throw the ball. I want to be protected better. And if that is not worked out, I think this is as much about non-economics and philosophy. So I think what they have to do is get behind closed doors, see if they can work something out. If not, if I'm Seattle, I got to really think about trading him in the next 12 months. Well, if they do, it's going to be a lot quicker than that. It'll be a lot sooner than 12 months, I can tell you that. Now, of course, anytime, and I do mean anytime, a quarterback is rumored to be on the move, (laughs) what team is always mentioned? What's the one team that is always mentioned in every single quarterback rumor there is? It's Chicago. It's the Bears. I mean, always. Yeah, uh, the Bears were a, a possible destination for Carson Wentz, a possible destination for Matthew Stafford. Uh, the Bears are going to trade for Deshaun Watson. The Bears are going to get Ben Roethlisberger if he didn't restructure his deal with the Steelers. The Bears, the Bears, the Bears. And in the Wilson situation, there may be some legs to any rumors about the Bears because Wilson listed the team as one of the teams that he would waive his no-trade clause to go to, right? So, at least in this instance, you can see it because they're on the short list. Adam Schefter was on yesterday with uh, Mike Greenberg. I've had a lot of texts asking if Russell Wilson's going to be the Bears quarterback. So it's not just your friends, it's my friends too, Greeny. And what I would say to that is this. The Bears are the most desperate team to go land a quarterback. I think Matt Nagy, Ryan Pace, they know that their jobs are on the line, that they have to go do something. And so from that standpoint, if Russell Wilson wants to go to Chicago and the Bears want Russell Wilson, well, you'd think that the makings of a deal would be there. But I would say this, what are the Bears trading for Russell Wilson? 
They have the 20th pick in the draft. They don't have an obvious quarterback that Seattle would want. What is that package going to look like that's going to enable Seattle or allow Seattle to eat $39 million in dead cap money? You tell me, what's that package look like? Give me an idea. Well, to me, there are no untouchables when it comes to getting Russell Wilson, if you're the Bears. I would say, take a look at our roster, and you tell us <laughs> who you want. You pick the package. You put it together. Because Russell Wilson, from the moment the Bears acquired him, would be the greatest quarterback the Bears have ever had in their franchise history. The sad thing is, he's not wrong about that. <laughs> when you look, and believe me, I did, when you look at Chicago's quarterback history, it may be the most least impressive list in the history of the NFL. And we're going to talk about that list next when we come back. It's, it's something else. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Just got done talking about Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. Will he be traded? Won't he be traded? One of the possible destinations, Chicago. Because Chicago is always brought up in quarterback rumors. And Adam Schefter made the comment yesterday, and I totally agree. If somehow, someway, the Seahawks trade Russell Wilson to the Bears, he would immediately be the best quarterback in franchise history before he even took a snap. Because when you look back at the Bears, a team that's been around since 1920, it has had maybe the worst collective group of starting quarterbacks ever. I mean, seriously. Like, name me one great quarterback for the Chicago Bears. Like, right off the top of your head. Like, right now. Like, do it. Don't, don't look it up. Don't Google it. Like, right now, give me a great quarterback for the Bears. And don't say Jim McMahon. <laughs> don't tell me Jim McMahon. Now, Jimmy Mack was a character. Did win a Super Bowl, but he wasn't a great quarterback. It wasn't Jim Harbaugh or Eric Kramer or Jake Cutler, Vince Evans, Bob Avellini. I guarantee I have a, a football card of Bob Avellini in my house somewhere. I mean, you have to go all the way back to Bobby Douglas in the late 60s, early 70s, or Sid Luckman back in the 40s to find decent quarterbacks for the Bears. It has has been a long list of just vanilla. The Bears quarterback history is vanilla. It's milk toast. It's average. Russell Wilson would be, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the best quarterback They've ever had. I mean, let's just look at the list. You can even start, like most recently, Mitch Trubisky, Cutler, Kyle Orton, Rex Grossman, <laughs> Craig Krenzel. I forgot Cordell Stewart was there for a year. Jim Miller, Cade McNown, Shane Matthews, Eric Kramer, Dave Craig, Harbaugh, Steve Walsh, Mike Tomzak. 
McMahon, Evans, Mike Phipps. Even if you look at the entire list, like all the NFL teams, most of them have had at least one great quarterback. If you look at all the NFL teams, you would be hard-pressed to find any team with a worse quarterback history than the Bears. Even if you look in their own division right now, the Packers, Aaron Rodgers, definitely a better quarterback than any that the Bears have ever had. The Vikings, Fran Tarkington, Randall Cunningham, that's easy. Even the even the Lions. I think it'd be safe to say that Matthew Stafford is a better quarterback than anything the Bears have ever had, ever. All respect to Eric Hipple. <laughs> and if you get that reference, if you're as old as me, give yourself six points. But if you run down the list, most teams have at least one great QB to their credit, which would automatically put them above the Bears, because the Bears just simply have never had one. And it's just crazy to think a team that's been around for 100 years, more than 100, hasn't been able to, to get that great quarterback. You would think eventually you get lucky, right? Just once? Maybe sign a free agent? I mean, you're going to hang your hat on Jay Cutler? Yeah, I know McMahon won a Super Bowl, but let's face it. We all know why the Bears won that Super Bowl. Because of that defense. McMahon was good. He had some weapons. He had Walter Payton, the fridge. He had Willie Galt. Right? A receiver, he was playing back in those days, right? Maybe the Browns, maybe the Browns have a a, a, a sketchy quarterback history. Again, all respect to Brian Sipe. And that may be uh, some homework for me, to, to go through the list and try to find one NFL team with a worse quarterback history than the Bears. I don't I don't know if it exists. I simply don't know if it exists. Some teams are close. But like even the Panthers, who in their short history, they, they had Cam Newton, right? Even Tampa Bay, who they could have been on that list, but they've had Tom Brady for one year. So <laughs> their quarterback history is immediately better than Chicago's. So who knows? And look, for what it's worth, coming full circle, I don't think Russell Wilson's going anywhere. I think Seattle would be foolish to trade him unless, unless, somebody comes up with an absolutely gonzo, can't-pass-it-up deal, I don't think the Seahawks are going to move Russell Wilson. Now, if he really becomes unhappy and he really wants out, then they may not have a choice. But to do it, just to do it without their hand being forced, I can't see it happening. I mean, Wilson's only—I say only—he's thirty-two. Still, he has several years left. Now, again, as I said earlier, it would be highly beneficial for the Seahawks 
to put some more weapons around Russell. To bulk up the offensive line. To either draft or sign some offensive weapons to make him happy. Because that's really the only way I see him leaving. Is if he becomes so unhappy, so disgruntled, that he's like, all right, I had enough. You get, you got to move me. Here are my teams. We already mentioned what Chicago, New Orleans, and Vegas. Send me to one of those three because Dallas is off the board. And let's move on. And again, if you believe Mike Silver, what he said on NFL Network yesterday, we might know as early as next week. Not necessarily, you know, that they're going to trade him, but we at least might have a clearer picture of what Seattle plans to do moving forward. And then we can go from there. And then we will have yet another quarterback shoe drop. This is this is this is an offseason like we've never seen before, as far as quarterbacks go. I mean, there's already been a whole lot of moving and shaking, and I don't even think we are close to being done. Deshaun Watson is still hanging out there somewhere. Sam Darnold, Russell Wilson. I mean, there's still so much to be done within the next several months. All right, hour number one in the books. Hour number two around the corner doing push-ups. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. I made a Radio 101 error <laughs> heading into last break. I forgot. I don't know if anybody picked up on it. But uh, I forgot to turn my mic. <laughs> As we went into last break, I forgot to bring my mic down. So I fire, you know, the first commercial or spot, as we call them in the business. And I reach over and I grab my bottle of water and I take a big swig and I go, ah. And I look down and I wondered why I just heard that in my my headset. It's because my microphone was still on. Fortunately, that's the only sound that I made during that during that time. <laughs> or else uh, it could have been embarrassing. All right. One final time this morning. Let's rock around the region. I want to rock right now. And we start with high school basketball on the girl side. Marier Purdue had 36 points and 11 rebounds to lead Frankfurt to a 62-58. Almost said, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, almost said 52. 62-58 win over Martinsburg in short gap. Elsewhere, Avery Everline had 11 points as Kaiser beat Union 50 to 13, and Hannah Alt had 13 points. Liz Pryor had 12, as Hampshire was a 45-33 winner at Washington tonight. East Hardy is at Tucker County, and Pendleton County is at Tigers Valley. On the boys' side last night, Hampshire won its season and home opener over Kaiser 71-41. Carter Smith had 27 points to lead the Trojans, a golden tornado off to an 0-2 start. Tucker County rolled over Pocahontas County 70-39. It was East Hardy 61, Moorfield 52. Justin Teets led three East Hardy players in double figures with 20. Coleman Mongold had a game-high 21 for Moorfield and Bishop Walsh 
uh, playing in the Flying to the Hoop Top Gun Challenge in Dayton, Ohio. The Spartans lost to Adidas Grassroots Elite out of Canada, A, 65-60. Jordan Rayford and Ishmael Habib each had 16 points. Jalen Miller and Travis Roberts each had 13 for BW. Tonight, uh, Moorefield right back in action against uh, Berkeley Springs at Berkeley, and Petersburg is hosting Frankfurt for a section matchup. College basketball, local women's hoops. Potomac State rolled over Allegheny College 101-34. McKenna Douthit, 14 points, 12 rebounds. And Lexi Turner had 17 points for the Catamounts. In men's college hoops, the final regular season AP poll was released yesterday. And West Virginia, after going 1-2 last week, fell four spots. Still stayed in the top 10 at number 10. Gonzaga, of course, still number one. Baylor back up to number two. Also yesterday, the Big 12 handed out its season awards. West Virginia's Derek Culver was named first-team all-conference. Deuce McBride was a second-team selection. Jalen Bridges was named to the all-freshman team. In the NFL, the Washington football team, the Fighting Riveras, placed the franchise tag on right guard Brandon Scherf. For the second straight year, a sheriff will receive $18 million bucks in 2021, which is a 20% increase, not bad. Over last season, uh, Washington still hopes to sign sheriff to a long-term deal and has until July 15th to do just that. Deadline for all 32 teams to place their franchise tags is 4 o'clock today. And tonight, on the ice, the Penguins are hosting the Rangers, while the Capitals are hosting the Devils. And, of course, you can catch the Caps game right here on this very station pregame at 645. And that is another very loaded Rock Around the Region brought to you by uh, the Cap Rally Group. And as I mentioned last hour, and it's worth repeating because maybe you weren't listening last hour. I don't know. Where were you? Frankfurt's Marier Purdue making a strong early case for Area Player of the Year and a spot on the All-State team. I don't know if they're going to do the Area Player of the Year since there's no basketball in Allegheny County. I don't know how that works, even though there should be. In three games, uh, Purdue has 28, 32, and 36 points. I do believe that's correct. I'm working off of memory, which these days, not so great. But if I'm correct, that's 96 points in three games. It's a 32-point-per-game average. Big reason why the Falcons are off to a 2-1 and one start. Both wins uh, against quad A schools. Spring Mills and then last night, Martinsburg. Also uh, from last night, really strange to think that the Hampshire-Kaiser boys game was a section game. Hasn't been that way for a long while, but since you know West Virginia moved to four classes in basketball this year and next, hopefully for years after that, I'd much rather have the quad A system than the triple A system, at least in basketball anyway. Since they made the classification switch, Kaiser moved up to triple A. So last night's game was... A section game between the Golden Tornado and the Trojans. First section game between the two, I do believe, 
uh, in 19 years. And, you know, we, we try to keep tabs, keep track uh, of players as they move on from the high school ranks and, and move on to play college. And last night, there were some former high school standouts making a whole lot of noise for Potomac State, the women's team. And I mentioned a couple names in the rock around the region. Uh, Catamounts beat Allegheny College last night. McKenna Douthit, former Frankfurt standout, 14 points, 12 rebounds, 8 assists. Lexi Turner, former Kaiser standout, 17 points, 5 boards, 7 assists, 7 steals. And former Mountain Ridge standout, Maddie Paris, 8 points, 7 rebounds. So a lot of local representation on the Potomac State uh, basketball team. And uh, big thanks to Matt for sharing those statistics with me. So big shout-out, congrats to those young women as they continue their basketball careers at the uh, the next level. Speaking of uh, the next level, as soon as I find it here, where's it at? <laughs> I'm trying to find it in my notes. Oh, here we go, here we go. Had to get through all the Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson stuff. Last night, uh, we had a couple more teams that punched their tickets to the big dance. NCAA tournament, one team has been waiting a long time to put on it's boogie shoes. 10.9 seconds left. 10, 9, across the line comes Roberts. 7 seconds left. Left wing 3, up, doesn't go. Rebound fought for 4 seconds left. Ahead it goes to Donovan Gregory. 80 to 73, the Mountaineers top Georgia State. And for the first time in two decades, the App State Mountaineers are going dancing. Celebrated App State Nation. It's happened. He's a little excited. He's a little overjoyed. Appalachian State headed to the NCAA tournament for the first time in 21 years after winning the Sun Belt Conference Championship, upsetting two-time defending champ Georgia State. App State was the fourth seed in the Sun Belt. Get this. They lost six of their last seven games heading into the tournament. But then won four games in four nights, two in overtime. They hadn't won four straight games in the conference since 2015. And they pulled off as the four seed. And they're going dancing for the first time in 21 years. The other team that punched its ticket last night didn't have to wait as long. UNCG leading 69-61. Alvarez pulls up for three. No good. Rebound. Isaiah Miller. Clock is going to go out. Spartans celebrate. Southern Conference champions. UNCG. The call on the UNCG Sports Network top-seeded North Carolina Greensboro won the SoCon title with that 69-61 win over the seven-seed Mercer. It'll be the Spartans' fourth trip to the NCAA tournament and first since 2018. Now, for what it's worth, Joe Lunardi, he updated his uh, bracket projections last night. He has Appalachian State playing North Carolina A&T in one of the first four games, which are usually in Dayton, but not this year, with the winner of that game uh, facing top seed Gonzaga. 
And he has UNCG as a 13 seed uh, taking on Villanova in round one. So for all of the happiness and the joy they feel today, they probably won't feel next week. (laughs) Just saying. Appalachian State, congratulations. You're going to the dance for the first time in two decades, and uh, you're going to get stomped. Even if you get past uh, NCANT, you got the Zags up next. But hey, we'll let him be happy for now, right? In his updated projections, uh, Lunardi still has Maryland as a 10 seed and West Virginia as a 3 seed, but he did move the Mountaineers to another region. Yesterday, he had WVU in Region 4, along with Illinois, Alabama, and Oklahoma State. Now, he has the Mountaineers in Region 3, with Michigan as the top seed, Houston the 2 seed, and he also moved Oklahoma State to that region as well. And as these conference tournaments continue to get played, and they keep on crowning you know conference champions, Lunardi will keep on updating his brackets, hopefully... Uh, on a nightly basis. As expected, his top four seeds are the same. It's still Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, Illinois. That, that's not going to change. I can't even imagine the top eight seeds changing. Because right now, they're Ohio State, Iowa, Houston, and Alabama. May see some movement between three and four. He, he actually dropped Villanova from the three line to the four line. Because they right now are going through a lot of injury concern. That's so we'll see what happens. Only a couple of days. Nah, I shouldn't say a couple of days. What do we got? We got tonight, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Selection is Sunday. So what, five days, five, six days? And then we'll know for sure. And I, I'm not going to go out. I, I don't want to embarrass Joey Brackets. But one thing that we will do, since we reference him a lot, as, and usually he comes out and says it. We'll see how close he was. Because I, I've said on this show several times that Lunardi gets most most of the stuff right with his projections. And so whenever the official bracket comes out Sunday, we'll, we'll have a little fun with Joey Bree or Joey B. It's not even his real initial. Joey L. Lunardi to see how close he actually was. Anyway. Don't forget, tonight, right here on this very station, some uh, some pucks. The Capitals hosting the Devils. Uh, Caps right now, second place in the East Division. Devils uh, next to last in the division. Caps have won five of their last six, looking to uh, stay on a roll without the suspended Tom Wilson. Pre-game is 645, puck drop at 7 o'clock. Now, we talked about something yesterday, which I wanted to get back into because I really didn't have a whole lot of time to discuss it because we talked about it near the end of the show about this new overtime proposal that was sent into the league by the Ravens. And basically what it is is they're calling it a spot and choose. Because, as you know, the NFL has been trying to tweak its overtime rules forever, right? First, it was you know it was sudden death. When a coin flip, first team to score wins. Then they changed it to, you know, each team or the first team, if they score a touchdown, the game's over. If they kick a field goal, then the other team gets a chance. It's, it's, it's a mess. 
The Ravens, John Harbaugh and company, have submitted a proposal to the league, and it will be looked at uh, during the virtual owners' meetings next week, that they're calling a spot and choose. And basically what it is, is one team in overtime would get to pick where the ball is placed at the start of overtime. So they would spot the ball. And then the other team gets to choose whether they play offense or defense from that spot. And really, the effect of the change is to minimize the impact of the coin toss. And we we threw out the number yesterday. Under the current or even the old overtime rules, winner of the coin toss wins the game in overtime 58% of the time, almost 60%. So it's really, and that's been one of the big uh, arguments against the NFL overtime system, that it's not, each team doesn't have an equal chance to win the game in OT. Right? I mean, you struggle and you fight and you scratch and you claw and you go through four quarters and the game's tied and it's not really a a fair way to decide overtime. 58% of winners of the coin toss win the game. Because usually, unless somebody makes a really boneheaded decision, and we've seen a few of those in the past, right? Have we not? Usually, winner of the coin toss takes the ball. And they win the game without giving the team the ball back. With the spot and choose approach, both teams have a hand in what happens. Both teams now have to make a choice. Now, there there will still be a coin toss, right? Whoever wins the coin toss will choose whether they want to spot the ball or whether they want to choose offense or defense. Right? So there's still a there's still the coin toss involved, but it won't impact the game as much. So, I mean, for instance, let's just say you have Steelers and Ravens. We'll use the Ravens since this was their idea. And they flip a coin in overtime. Ravens win the coin toss, and they said, you know what, we'll spot the ball. They get to pick anywhere on the field. No kickoff, no nothing. They get to pick where the ball is going to be spotted. Say, so, all right, we'll put it at the uh, the 10-yard line. Go in the other direction. So you'll have 90 yards to go. And then the Steelers get to choose, all right, offense or defense. We either want to force Baltimore to take the ball at the 10, or we want the ball at the 10. And a lot of this, and, and now you're talking about, and coaches will be forced to decide, you know, how good is the offense playing? How good is the defense playing? You know, if we take the ball at the 10, do I feel good enough that our offense can drive the field? Because it'll still be sudden death. Oh, by the way, it'll still be sudden death. First team to score wins. So if the ball spot at the 10, you have to decide if you're Mike Tomlin or whoever in that situation, is my offense good enough? Did we play well enough in the first four quarters to take the ball at the 10 
and get in a scoring position and kick a field goal and win the game? Or do I feel better putting my defense on the field first, giving the Ravens the ball at the 10, maybe force them to go three and out, punt, and we get the ball back around, what, midfield? And in, in much better field position to drive for a game-winning field goal. And when I first heard about this, this spot and choose, I thought, eh, this is too gimmicky. This is just, you know, this is way out of bounds. I, I, I didn't like it. But the more I thought about it, it's not terrible. It really isn't terrible. Now, what we'll see a lot of is a team spotting the ball deep in the other territory, right? Uh, for obvious reasons, you're not going to spot the ball at the 50. And according to, to Mike Florio from uh, uh, Pro Football Talk, he, he said a team's own 13-yard line is believed to be the break-even point for spotting the ball. Any further downfield, the second team is more likely to take possession and further pinned against their own end zone, the second team will likely elect to defend. So right around that 13, 15-yard line range really puts, you know, really puts another team in, in, in a position. Now, do I want to go offense, defense? Not quite sure. But I kind of like it. I would, I, I would want them to maybe try it like Major League Baseball does, right? They, they try this new stuff in, in uh, spring training. I wouldn't mind seeing them try this in the preseason. And that, of course, is assuming that one of those games actually does go to overtime. And there are so many things that can factor into this decision, this spot and choose. You know, is a game being played in terrible weather? Is the wind a factor? Snow, rain. You know, if you're playing against a high-powered offense, you know, do you want to pin the Chiefs? You know, let's just say you're playing the Chiefs, right? Patrick Mahomes, right? Do you want to pin him deep? Put the ball at the, at the 10, the 5, or whatever? There would be a whole a heck of a lot more strategy involved in the spot and choose than just flipping a daggone coin and saying, all right, yeah, we'll take the ball. Because that's, that's all it is right now, right? Flip a coin, heads or tails, Oh, you want okay. All right, we want the ball. Of course you do. Now there's a second proposal that would just make overtime a seven and a half minute quarter. That's it. Now I don't know how they would determine who gets the ball first. Maybe a coin flip again. But you would just play seven and a half minutes. And whoever was winning at the end of the seven and a half minutes, the game's over. So there's no sudden death. You would think in seven and a half minutes, each team would possess the ball once, you would think. And then the game's over. I would like it to be 10 minutes. All right, I think it would be 10. And I've said this before. You play an extra 10-minute overtime, and you just play. You just play. You kick off, and you play. And whoever is winning at the end of the 10 minutes is the winner of the game. If it's still tied, then it's a tie game. So I like I like I like both proposals to tell you the truth. What I would like to see is just have the extra period. 
and just let them play. No sudden death, no first-team score, second-team score, kickoff field, none of that crap. Just play. Ten minutes, you're pretty much guaranteed that each team touches the ball once. I don't, I'm not a big fan of sudden death in, in football. I just, I, I don't know. Just, just play the 10 minutes, even with seven and a half, just play it out and see what happens. But I, I think both, I think both are better alternatives to what, the, what we have now. I really, I, I wish they just go to the college. I wish they just go to the, the college rules and just give each, each team the ball to 30 yard line, whatever it is now, 25, 30, whatever it is. To me, that system is much better than what the NFL has now. I don't like it. I didn't like it before. I don't like it now. Give me the spot and choose. Give me the extra period. Give me the college. Give me something better than what the NFL has now. Give me something more than deciding the game on just a coin flip. Because, again, 58% of the teams that win a coin flip win the game. That's too too skewed for me. That's too one-sided for me. Let me know what you think. 301-759-2628. Do you like the current NFL rules? Overtime rules? You just want to keep them the same? Do you like the spot and choose? You think it's interesting? Do you just want them to play an extra period and see who wins at the end? Do you like the college? What is the best way to fix the NFL overtime rule? Or just keep it the same. Maybe you like that way. I don't know. But the spot and choose, the more I think about it, the more I talk about it, the more I kind of like it. All right, stick around. News and weather coming up next. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Uh, College football, Les Miles is out. Finally, as the head coach at Kansas three days after he was placed on administrative leave because of accusations of inappropriate behavior uh, toward female students when he was still the head coach at LSU. On Friday, uh, Kansas AD Jeff Long said they would uh, conduct a full review to determine the appropriate steps on Miles' future. And then late last night, they agreed to mutually part ways, which is a polite way of saying you're fired. Long said that Kansas will use a search firm to assist in finding Miles' successor. They did not use a search firm when uh, they hired Miles at Kansas. Those two apparently were friends Uh, from their time together at Michigan in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. So there were really two reports that came out last week. One report was released on behalf of LSU that showed an internal investigation back in 2013 when Miles was still there. And he was accused of inappropriate behavior, allegations that he contacted some students via Facebook and text messaging, that he met him off campus alone and kissed at least one of them. The report did not find any 
sexual relationship with any of the, of the female students. And Miles strongly denied that he kissed any of the students. He said he didn't do anything wrong, and he was just mentoring the students at LSU. Then there was another report that came out on Friday, this one conducted by a law firm that uh, says that it detailed systemic failure by LSU to appropriately report the incidents of the alleged misconduct. And part of the report showed that uh, former LSU AD Joe Oliva recommended back in 2013 that Miles be fired as coach because of the accusations, which didn't happen. And because of these two reports, all this stuff comes to light, all these allegations and, and accusations, and Kansas was like, Nah, we, we can't have this. You know, after all this stuff comes out, they're like, no. Let's, you know, let, let's, let's mutually agree to part ways. And Stuart Mandel from The Athletic uh, said yesterday, you know, <laughs> why would Kansas want him around? Why would they want to keep Les Miles after this? Because he's off to a pretty, pretty rough start. Kansas, they were winless last season, so this isn't like a case of the highly successful coach that you maybe try to find excuses to keep. And the details that came out, two are different reports now. The one that came out yesterday that from the original time it happened in 2013, and this one today that actually provided even more details. The stuff that's described in there, I just don't know how you could, even though it happened a long time ago, I don't know why you would want that person to be representing your school would we'll be going out there in Kansas colors and recruiting and meeting with donors. And all the while we've all just learned that when he was at uh, LSU, he, you know, had very uh, tasteless comments about how he wanted the women who worked in his football office to look. And I mentioned the reports. Stewart mentioned the reports and with some more details on those reports, uh, from USA Today, here's uh, Kenny Jacoby. Les Miles was accused of sexually harassing at least two, if not three or more, student workers who worked in the athletic department. Um, he essentially wanted a role in personally interviewing them and selecting who would be picked. And, and he, what we learned today is he had a preference toward blonde women who were, you know, particularly attractive. He wanted this as a way of sort of selling it to potential recruits, selling the school. Um, As far as the sexual harassment, what we learned is that he, you know, when he hired these uh, young women, he sometimes offered them to help their careers later, later down the line after they graduated, and then kind of turned that into a more personal relationship with them. And then Ultimately, one of the women said he kissed her alone when he was driving her in his car. One of the other students that was mentioned in this report today said that she had a very traumatic experience when she was alone in a room with him and uh, alleged some sort of unwanted touching. And and, uh, this had such a profound impact on her that she basically up and left. So by the sounds of it, if... The allegations and accusations are true. Uh, it sounds like Les Miles is just a sleazeball. 
right? That's what I can use on the air without getting fired. Fair enough? I mean, to think, again, if the allegations and accusations are true, to think that he would use the looks of these students that work with him as a basically a recruiting tool, right? Like if, if potential recruits come in to visit, they come on campus and they see these blonde-haired female students around the football office that that might be a way to entice these. That's just, that's, ugh, right? That's, that's, that's sleazy. That's, that's slimy stuff right there. To use these female students like that. On top of everything else. And again, Miles has denied all of this. But generally speaking, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Generally. I'm not saying Miles did or didn't do any of this stuff because right now there are still allegations and accusations. Even though they were back in 2013, like you heard the man say right there, it still happened, allegedly. I just I just don't know what <laughs> how many times do I say on this show, like what what are you doing? What are you doing? Some of these guys, I'm telling you, they get in these positions of power, right? Hey, I'm a head coach of a Division I football program. I'm a head coach of a Power Five conference team. That I'm going to do whatever I want, and I, I can do this and do it. Right? That's the feeling you get sometimes. Like, I'm, un, I'm untouchable. And, and to think that, again, if these allegations are true, that you would think that'd be acceptable or that nobody would find out or that it wouldn't come out. That's just, like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you thinking, man? So Miles is done, at least at Kansas. I can't imagine... I, I can't imagine him finding another job, at least at the Division One level. I can't imagine because look, it, it's it's not like he was he was three and eighteen in two seasons at Kansas, three and eighteen. Not, not that Kansas is the easiest place to win when it comes to football because they haven't won more than three games since two thousand nine. But I can't I can't imagine him latching on anywhere else. Not after not after this. These things have a tendency to stick with you wherever you go. So now the question becomes, who who gets the job? First of all, who wants the job at Kansas? But where do the Jayhawks look for their new head coach? Here's Adam Rittenberg. I'd be really surprised if it isn't a established or older current FBS head coach. I don't think you go with the coordinator in this situation, given where the program is right now. But there's certainly the argument, guys, that Kansas could have just gone with an interim uh, head coach this year, whether it was Mike DeBoard or somebody else, and then reset for a full search next year, possibly with a new athletic director. That could have been an option. They, they decided not to do that. They're going to begin their search right now, as Jeff Long said in his statement. And I think there are some options for them. You know, some of those older 
uh, FBS head coaches, guys like Willie Fritz of Tulane, Lance Leipold of Buffalo, Jay Norvell of Nevada, Skip Holtz, Louisiana Tech. There are some guys that you know, maybe you know, haven't gotten that power five opportunity and that they're, on the kind of, they're at the tail end of their careers, may not have that many chances left. Maybe this job might tempt them, but it is a very difficult time. Uh, he mentioned Mike DeBoard, who was just hired last month as Kansas's offensive coordinator. He will serve as the acting head coach until an interim head coach is determined. Tough times on the football field and the football program uh, at Kansas. All right, uh, one final break, and we're back to wrap things up. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Let's look at the player who delivered last night, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. How about Anaheim's Ricard Raquel? The center had two goals and an assist in the Ducks' 6-5 win over the Kings. Honorable mention, the Kings' Adrian Kempe, who had a hat trick for Los Angeles in a losing effort. So our player who delivered last night, Anaheim's Ricard Raquel. I just wanted to say Ricard Raquel a couple times. Brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and a Supply Yard. All right, uh, real quick. The uh, West Virginia AP high school polls came out yesterday. This was before last night's action, so obviously they'll change. In girls quad A, I love saying quad A. I love it. I love saying quad A in West Virginia. It's the way it should be. Wheeling Park is uh, the top team in the latest AP poll. Martinsburg is eighth, although they lost to Frankfurt last night. That's their 0 2. In AAA, Fairmont Senior, surprise, <laughs> they're, they're ranked first. In AA, it's Wyoming East in the top spot. Frankfurt uh, ranked fourth in the latest AP poll. And in Class A, Gilmore County is first. Tucker County, which has made the state tournament for like 48 straight years, is ranked second. Uh, Pocahontas County is eighth. In the latest boys' AP polls, in Quad A, Morgantown, is ranked first. Martinsburg is fourth. Musselman and St. Albans tied for 10th. Jefferson, Hedgesville getting some love in the others receiving votes category. And AAA, Robert C. Bird is ranked first. Shady Springs second. Wheeling Central is third. Berkeley Springs getting some love. Uh, ranked ninth in the uh, latest poll. Hampshire also in the other receiving votes category. Double A, Polka is first. Williamtown is second. I'm sorry, Williamstown. Got to make sure to throw the S in there. Uh, Frankfurt checks in at number 10. Moorfield just behind Frankfurt uh, receiving 12 votes. And, of course, uh, this year, Frankfurt and Moorfield both in the same section as Moorfield is now in double A. And in the Class A boys, Greater Beckley Christian is ranked first. Man is second. Pendleton County, who uh, they didn't lose a game last year, did they? Weren't they 23-0? They are ranked third. And let's see here in the other receiving votes category, Tucker County and East Hardy. So there you go. 
the latest, which were released yesterday, the latest uh, AP polls in West Virginia. Again, tonight, a sectional matchup on the uh, on the boys' side. Frankfurt travels to take on Petersburg. I'll definitely have a score for you for that game because, uh, you know, uh, I'll be there. Only varsity, uh, by the way, today. No JV game. So it's actually going to be an earlier start than usual. Instead of 7.30, it's going to start at 6.30. Moorefield and Berkeley in action tonight as well. And we'll try to get you as many scores and whatnot as possible. Don't forget, tonight on the ice, Capitals are hosting the Devils. That game can be heard right here at uh, 6.45 pregame puck drop at 7 o'clock. The Caps uh, trying to keep pace with the Islanders in the East Division. If I can look up the uh, latest standings here real quick. Oh, the internet moving once again at the uh, speed of mud. It's a wonderful thing. You have to love the high-tech. Come on, here we go. Islanders are in first, 34 points, Caps with 32, Bruins and Penguins tied for third, each with 29. Caps have won five of their last six, looking to get fat against the Devils team that has only won eight games all year. They only have 15, I'm sorry, 18 points. So you would think the Capitals on home ice should be able to take care of business. Penguins, by the way, also in action, uh, they host the Rangers. They are six points ahead of the Rangers in the standing. Is the season almost, what are you, what are you 25 games around 25-26? Eh, season's almost halfway over already. Can you believe that? I mean, remember, it's a shortened season this year in the NHL. They're not playing the full 82. Spring training action today. The Pirates are playing this afternoon, right? They were off yesterday. And they are at Atlanta at 105. The Orioles, the Oreos, uh, they're at the Twins, also at 105. And the Nats, a little evening action, uh, they're at the Astros at a 605. And do not forget, since we're plugging the station, we are once again a Washington Nationals affiliate this year. So we got pretty much a lot of D.C. covered, right? D.C., Baltimore, Ravens affiliate, Capitals, Nationals, right? It's not bad. What's next? We get to get the Wizards. <laughs> let's let's get the Wizards. Well, we no, we can't get the Fighting Riveras because they're on another station, so we can't we can't pick them up. And baseball, what is today? March 9th? starting in April first, right? Three weeks. We have real baseball. I can't wait. I can't wait. All right, so we got another show in the books. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it as always. Don't forget, check me out on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush or at Rush Tony C. Also, our Facebook page at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. Like the pages, follow the pages, leave some comments, questions, or whatever. Also, if you miss any of today's show or any show of the past, you can check it out later today. I'll upload the show on our podcast page on the free Podbean app. Take all the commercials out. It's all there just for you. I know I'm stalling. I'm just trying to get to uh, 20 after. There we go. <laughs> I revealed my secret. I was just stalling, trying to get to the last minute of the show. I hit the wall one minute too early. 
But it's true. Check it out on the podcast page. Upload today's show uh, later on today. Back tomorrow, 7 a.m. sharp. This is the Morning Rush. I am Tony C. And I am done. Ah, see ya.